January, uh, or the middle of January of 2020. And uh, I had started to preach through the book of Daniel. And every time that I preach through Daniel, I feel that I'm being uh, a good Adventist pastor. Because no matter what's going on, you could have conflicts and everything else, but start the book of Daniel in an Adventist church and you're gonna be okay, at least until you finish the book of Daniel. And I got only about uh, five or so chapters in, we were just, uh, just learning, you know, uh, still going through the narratives, not even getting to the prophecy yet, except in chapter two. And uh, there's, I look at, the, look at the note and I look at the date, and it was third week in March, 2020. You know what happened? Got a letter from the conference saying we needed to close and we needed a shelter in place. So after, I don't know how many months when we started getting back together and how many months I preached to just the camera uh, and then finally we got back together, I thought it was kind of stupid to try to uh, go back to the book of Daniel. Well, I I thought that uh, that I was gonna do it this year. November, the first Sabbath in November, all set to go through the book of Daniel and then I disappeared. I had to stay at home. So I don't know what God is telling us right now about the book of Daniel. I'm not sure uh, what's keeping us, but uh, had we we been able to get there, we probably would have been about to this point to where uh, 168 BC, where the Greek empire is holding on just a little bit, just barely by the skin of their teeth because the looming of Rome is right above them. And it was proved because the ruler, the Seleucid ruler of the Greeks, Antiochus Epiphanes, thought that he was gonna be able to conquer Egypt. He was ready to go to war in Egypt to be able to annex Egypt for the Greek empire. And if he had had accomplished it, maybe Greece would have held on for a little bit longer. But the Roman envoy shows up and he tells him, he says, we need you to decide right now whether or not you're going to try to go to war with Egypt. And Antiochus says, oh, well, I better go... uh, I gotta go uh, talk to my, uh, to my generals. I gotta go talk to everybody. And the envoy literally in the Egyptian sand drew a circle around Antiochus and said, before you leave this circle, you need to tell us whether or not you think you're gonna go to war with Egypt. Because if we know history, we know that Rome and Egypt have already kind of had an alliance. And this was Rome's step up saying, you know, you're not really as powerful as you think you're gonna be. Well, Antiochus didn't cross the line in the sand. He told them that he promised that he wouldn't. The envoy goes back to Rome to tell the emperor. And here Antiochus now feels just a little bit powerless. And the story goes, we think that what happened was that he hears of one of his nations that he thought he had control of is in rebellion. In Palestine, there is a a kind of mini rebellion going on. Antiochus had placed a high priest in charge that was his high priest. And he had been integrating this hybrid Greek Hebrew worship in the temple, outlawing the, the, uh, the Hebrew uh, way of sacrifice and everything else. And he was weaving his, his way into it. Well, they overthrew and they put a, 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 a priest, a Zadokite priest back in charge. Antiochus hears about this. It only involved a couple of hundred 
people, maybe not even 50 soldiers, but Antiochus still stinging, you know, with his tail between his legs, having been whipped on the nose by Rome, he decides that he's gonna go pick on somebody that he knows he can pick on. So he goes back to Athens by way of Palestine and he marches into Jerusalem as if this is a full force rebellion and for months he goes on a terror in order. He puts his priest back in charge. He outlaws Hebrew worship once again. He, he erects an image in the middle of the courtyard of the temple as high as the temple itself of himself And in this war of putting down this fake rebellion, this rebellion that he believed was an entire rebellion but only involved a few hundred people, he ends up killing about 7,000 people in order to grind his power in place. Well, we know that in Modin there's this family of uh, boys called the Maccabees And for the next few years, the Maccabees raise up an army that even sends Antiochus out of town. And it really is the end of the Greek empire then. Rome begins to uh, access their power with Egypt and they begin to move through. And that's it for the Seleucids and the Ptolemies of Greece. But we, we know that sometime that the Maccabees retook the temple and they tore down the desecration and they reinstituted uh, the, the worship. But they needed the temple to be cleansed. And when they rededicated the temple, they looked around and they realized that there was only one day of oil for the menorah inside the holy place. It took eight days to purify the oil to be able to put in there. They lit the candles for one day, began to purify the others and the candles burned for another eight days. And in that, they now celebrate what? Hanukkah. God has decided to be present even if the world around is so chaotic and so bloody, he still decides to be present even though we play by our rules, he still decides to be present. Whether it be his presence burning in the temple for eight days miraculously until they could get oil, whether it be anything else. And it's funny, there's a, there was a, a TV show a long time ago that had this couple and this, this couple was, uh, uh, the, the husband was of, of Jewish ancestry. He wasn't necessarily religious and the wife was of Christian ancestry and she wasn't necessarily religious, but there's this one Christmas where they were arguing over what they were gonna do. You know, she wanted and he wanted. And she finally blurts out, she says, are we really supposed to believe that the, that the uh, oil lasted for eight days when it was only a one-day supply? Is, are we really supposed to believe that? And you could see his face getting bigger and bigger, and he says, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Which story is harder to believe, he says. You got a young teenager who gets pregnant without having sex, and the baby turns out to be God himself. Whoa. Eight days, born to be a baby. 
Michael Card's song, The Promise, includes this lyric. He says, the Lord God said when time was full, he would shine his light in the darkness. He said a virgin would conceive and give birth to the promise. For a thousand years, the dreamers dreamt that they would see his love. But the promise showed their wildest dreams had simply not been wild enough. Dreams. Dreaming that his presence is here, even if and even though it doesn't seem like it. Even if and even though we present a world that, that when you look at it from the surface, you say, there's no way God could be in this. There's no way his presence could be with us. And so what we have to do then is, yes, we need to dream. And I have to say, since March or so of 2020, all the way to here, the, the, the journey that I've experienced, I haven't talked too much about hopes and dreams, and you don't hear about that a lot. There's not a lot of hopes and dreams within this world for the past three years. In fact, there's a lot of hopes of dreams that have been ground into the dirt and just don't exist anymore. But Christmas comes every year and we're required as the prophets were to dream just a little bit. I think it hits the nail on the head when we're talking about Christmas and trying to imagine his presence in this world throughout our bloody history and all the violence of today. He still says he's present, even though it doesn't seem. So dreaming is the only way sometimes, I believe, that we could get to when we're talking about this perfect Christmas presence. I don't think it requires wisdom. I don't think it requires knowledge. It requires dreaming just a little. Imagine. Faith-trained imagination. If you, th- if you look at the definition of faith, the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things unseen, doesn't that sound like dreaming? Don't we dream of the unseen substance? Dreaming of the unseen presence. Remember who it was that rejected the Messiah the ones who had the most knowledge, the learned, the faithful, the church. What was the reason? Why didn't they accept the Messiah? Why didn't they, they, uh, um, with all of their knowledge, with all of their faith, with all the hope that they had in the word, that he comes and they reject him? I've told you before, the reason they did was that they studied their Bible too much. See, I knew that would get a rise out of you. I love when I say it. They were good Bible students. They were too good. Because remember prayer meeting, when we went through the Gospel of John, what is the one thing that they kept putting between Jesus and themselves? His own word, the law. The law says there's no way you can be who you claim to be. It is possible to study your Bible too much. if it takes away your ability to dream. Bible study, they made a new God, one's own interpretation of scripture that led to a cherished tradition that would not budge even when God himself showed up and asked them to dream. 
You look at our, our Bible studies, you look at uh, Adventist doctrinal Bible studies and, and whether, uh, whether or not it is from it is written or the voice of prophecy or from anywhere else, we write these, the, the, these uh, doctrinal Bible studies for all of our beliefs, like, like at the end of the Sabbath and everything else. And there's always this one question at the end, and that is you're supposed to ask them after you give them all the evidence of the Seventh-day Sabbath, you ask them what? Does this make sense to you? Sense, logic, knowledge, evidence. That's what we look for. Problem is, is that we could make those gods. Because I'll tell you, the gospel, if there's one thing the gospel does not do, is the gospel does not make sense. It defies human logic. Incarnation, creator God becoming one of us, there's no human logic in that. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. That doesn't require knowledge. That doesn't require uh, knowledge of scripture and, and times and dates and fulfillments of prophecy. That requires a little bit of dreaming in order to believe that God would do that for us. It's safer though that we put more faith in our human methods. It's safer that we make those methods our gods. Human wisdom needs something to be sensed, to be felt, to be solid. Human wisdom though, Paul says, is foolishness. Even in the midst, that's what we want. We want something that we can hold on to because this world is nothing but chaos. This world is us floating in unanchored boats and we're looking for what? We're looking for something to feel. We're looking for something to, to grab onto to stop this drifting. And maybe if we just let it go and dreamed a little bit, Jesus would come walking on the water. But we would need to dream. That night, the storm was beyond what they could imagine that night. And they quit dreaming and they quit having faith. And yet here he comes. And they couldn't imagine it. They thought he was a ghost. They didn't even believe that it was him. Why? Because in that moment, they couldn't dream. They couldn't imagine that even though we're about to die, <laughs> even if the sea won't let us look past anything, Jesus shows up. He is present. He is, is, even if, and even though. We have something fundamental in us. We changed the DNA of what we were created with. There's something fundamentally that happened to us. And I'm gonna uh, work on a little bit uh, in places that, uh, I'm gonna have some scripture that I probably have already read because last week was kind of a devotion and I needed to, you know, to try to uh, put something down. But uh, in this particular case, I'm gonna go to Genesis. We talk about this theology of even though and even if what we did, what happened to us, okay? Something in our DNA changed. Genesis 3.10 said, uh, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was what? I was afraid. That's the one thing that has happened. That's the one thing that is different from today, from yesterday. 
Because yesterday, when they, they walked in the garden, they walked together with no what? No fear. No fear, no guilt, no shame. They were naked with him yesterday. And it probably, yes, was a physical nakedness, but it also was an emotional nakedness. They were completely, absolutely open. They had no reason to hide from him. There was no reason to fear him. The one thing that fundamentally changed after the fall is now they're what? We were afraid when we heard you. The default mode now of human wiring, it's, it's in within us. We've got a gland in, inside of us that when something happens, that gland secretes this kind, of, uh, this kind of jolt and the jolt either has us fight or what? Or flight. We have no control over that. We don't know what we're going to do. We either are going to stand our ground and fight, which might be stupid, or we're gonna flee. We don't even have control over that, do we? predecessor of mine in a church that we had up in the Redwoods, an earthquake happened in the middle of the church. He's standing at the pulpit. And this particular church, the, the, uh, the grounds on which the church was, there was Dorcas, there was the church, there was the parsonage that was all on the same place. We lived in, in that place. And one day I counted, we had 27 juvenile Redwoods all around our property. When I say juvenile, they were already well over 200 feet tall. That earthquake happened and I remember the head elder said, I was looking out the window and I could see those redwoods which are as big around as, as you can't even imagine. You can't get your arms around them and I can see them doing this. And they had lights in there that weren't, weren't like these but they were suspended from the ceiling and they were going like this. And a pastor was up there and he was preaching and when that happened, there was a door outside there was a door that led outside a side door. He flew. Poor guy. <laughs> he didn't have any control over that, right? But he wasn't going down with the ship. He said, I, I couldn't control it. I just saw the door and flew. His wife and two daughters are in the front row going, I feel sorry for him, a poor guy. We either flee from danger or we stand to try to fight the danger in order, uh, in order to keep it from doing something. We do it first to keep it from hurting us. Because that's what we are. Adam and Eve now place God away before he can what? Before he can hurt them. Because they believe that's what he's come back for. That is our human wiring. In our case, it always turns fatal because the only one who can give life and has decided that life will only exist in love of him, that means our fear of him is fatal. If we hold on to a fear of God, if we fear him and continue to hide from him, by the way, we, it, there's a, a bunch of ways to hide from him. The absolutely worst way to hide from him is to hide from him behind our Bibles to hide from him behind a form of worship. To 
hide from him thinking that we've got everything we need. We have our knowledge. We have our wisdom. We are rich and have need of nothing that we feel even comfortable putting him outside the church and locking the door. Our fear of God is fatal. The fear settles in and you can see it demonstrated. Within the first generation of this fear making its way through the human DNA, we end up with our first murder. And it's not just any murder. It's the only two brothers that exist. Cain kills Abel. And I always ask, I, I, I ask kids, I say, why did it happen? Why did Cain kill Abel? And we can come up with all kinds of Sabbath school instructions. You know, God accepted uh, Abel's sacrifice, didn't accept Cain's, you know, so forth and so on. I have to tell you this, then it came down to sacrificing fruits and vegetables on an altar, he killed his brother for nothing. What if God will always like him better than me? That, that fear that is in my father, it is now in me. Fear of not being number one. Fear of not having something mastered. Fear of being, uh, just having to be so good that God can't hurt us. I think one of the problems with final generation theology and the teaching that we need to become sinlessly perfect, one of the reasons that drives fundamentalists to become sinlessly perfect is then they force God to save them. If I'm perfect, you have to save me. But it also means that they're rich and have need of nothing. It's so ingrained God shows them then where fear will take them. See, he told Cain, he said, you're gonna have to leave. You can't till the ground anymore. See, by then, that's what Cain does. He tills the ground. That was what the uh, problem was. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer. And he says, you can't till the ground anymore. You need to, you need to leave where the farm is. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you've driven me away from the soil. I shall be hidden from your face. I'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Anyone who meets me may what? See how ingrained it is? It doesn't matter who he meets. He believes that he has to pay with his life for taking his brother's life. I'm gonna live with that fear. By the way, did God tell him that that was what was going to happen? That's how ingrained it is in us. Somebody's got to pay. In just a few thousand years, we're going to come up with pretty much an international law. I mean, uh, a law that, that, that goes from the Bible all the way, all through society. The law of kindred avenger. I mean, you take somebody from my family, I'm allowed to take somebody from your family. And then we're even... Neither is convicted, neither has to serve a prison time or anything. Now we're even. And it's lived out, it's lived out, especially in Israel. When David goes to, to, to make his battle, when he makes himself ready to go to, to Goliath after he tells Saul, I can't wear your armor, I can't use your spear, I can't use any of that, and he goes over to the, to the, to the brook, he picks up how many stones? Did he think that he wasn't gonna hit Goliath with the first one? Goliath had four brothers. He knows that when he kills him, 
He's now gonna maybe have to face the brothers. They'll come onto the battlefield. Why? Because that's the way they live. The law of kindred avenger. Which by the way, the beautiful thing is right in, that, right in the law, God says, I'm gonna defuse that. And he comes up with the cities of refuge where you could flee to if you murdered somebody. You could flee to. And once you got there, the family couldn't come and just murder you. There's gonna be a trial. But God says it's not gonna be based on this law of emotion, this law of fear that is ingrained in all of us. Fear of revenge. So God says, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a what? Sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Cain is now marked. Kill him and something will happen to you. Sevenfold will come. So you calm fear the way that humans calm fear is that we calm it with what? With vengeance. We make a promise that it's gonna hurt you more if you hurt me right now. It makes sense on this planet. Let's calm fear with greater fear. The problem is, it's never enough, is it? It's never enough. Cain's great-great-grandson named Lamech for some reason, he told, it, it says that he, he takes two wives, is the way that it says. And he comes home one day and he pronounces, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Did he, did he pay the proper vengeance? No. That was an eye for an eye. He took his life for getting punched. And Lamech sounds like a real jerk, so he probably deserved the punch, right? But did the man deserve to die because of one punch? That's what he's saying. He's saying, I messed up, big time. I killed a man for striking me. So his solution, if Cain, my great-great-grandfather, is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech is avenged what? 70-fold, after only five generations now of human beings, we now have upped the vengeance from seven to 70. By the way, when we get to 10 generations, there is nothing on the planet but violence. God looks at the planet and there is nothing, there is nobody that has a heart to not live this out anymore. Humanity is down to eight heartbeats by 10 generations. Lord saw the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Sevenfold, one, seven, 70, everybody. Vengeance is never what? It's never enough. In 1910, Franz Ferdinand was the nephew of the Austro-Hungarian emperor. And he was killed by a terrorist group known as the Black Hand. 
And because the Black Hand were a Serbian nationalist society, the empire declared war on Serbia. Then Russia, who was bound by a treaty, was forced to mobilize, which means that Germany had to declare war on Russia. Then France declared war on Germany, and well, four years, three months, and two weeks later, World War I ends to the tune of eight and a half to 11 million military dead, four and a half to eight and a half million civilian dead, and 24 million wounded. Considering the world's population at the time, this conflict was the greatest in all of human history. And it began with the assassination of one nephew of one emperor. By the way, on October 7th, 1139 people were killed. Yes, horribly, brutally. But the vengeance that's been taken out is now up to 19,000 dead as of yesterday. Sevenfold, 70-fold. All the earth. This life certainly is something to fear. Fear is fatal on this planet, but the fatality is not the dying planet. The fatality is when God is feared along with the ruined dreams. See, we're dictated by time. We put an expiration date on life. But God, he is the beginning. He is the was, the is, and what? And the is to come. For him, fear is constantly. We are constantly interrupting this constant presence as a time to die. God's not bound by these constraints. He lives in the never-ending sphere. He knows the beginning from the end. He is the beginning from the end. And he's decided, even though that we put life on a timeline and we put death at the end of it, he still has decided with his eternity, he's going to insert himself into that history. He is. His presence is, even if this planet doesn't seem that it welcomes it, even though this planet is so violent, we can't even dream that his presence is with us anymore. We have this inherent distrust of that knowledge that he has. He knows the beginning from the end. And by the way, we don't trust him with that. So we protect ourselves from it. We assume that we also know the beginning from the end, but only he is the one that knows it. And there's something inherent about the human being saying, you know what, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with somebody who knows everything. I don't know what you're gonna do with that knowledge. We create him then in our image and we make him a fearful God so that we can play by our rules in, his, in this relationship. Let's just treat him as angry and as fearful as we are. The problem is, <laughs> he has all power. And if you're gonna give him anger, watch out. You're a, and so the enemy accuses him. You're afraid they won't worship you, so you put a hedge around them. That's what he said about Job. 
Does Job serve God for nothing? He only serves him because you bless him. Our fear drives us to the point that we forget that when he created humanity, he decided that life was going to be given and experienced by love with all three of them. Together. Not just transcending, but existing in the moment. His presence is with us, even though, even if. We forget, too, that even after they, that we decided not to worship him anymore, that they exercised the free will he created them with to not worship him, to not love him, to not trust him, his plan still didn't change. He showed up the next day. The whole reason we know that Adam was now afraid of God is God was looking the next day to continue to walk and talk with him, and he calls out, where are you? Which is interesting. Does he know where they are? Yeah. But remember what I said? He decides to place himself in our timeline and live in that history as if, as though. Where are you? Which means what? I'm looking for you today like I looked for you yesterday. What's happened? Oh, Adam, have you eaten from the tree? It was the woman. Eve, what have you done? It was the snake. Blame, guilt, shame, vengeance. See, if God changed the plan, See, because now he's, he, he, could, he, could, he could curb and curtail the suffering that's about to begin, couldn't he? Because if you, if you listen to uh, his speech then to all three of them, the serpent, the man, and the woman, if you listen to his speech, it's horrific what's about to happen. He tells him, look, you've changed the rules of the game. Did God know that somewhere along the line or everywhere along the line, he was going to be blamed for all the suffering in the world? that people would use the, the, uh, the free will that we have to do wrong, even, even to the harm of somebody else, and then take that and blame it on God, that they would now use that as you tell me he's a merciful God, yet he allows all of this to happen? Did he know that? See, if he was worried about his reputation, if he was worried about what God, what people would think about him later, he would have changed the rules, wouldn't he? First thing I would have done was take away free will because you messed it up. If I take away the free will, now I can control you. Then at least people will think that I'm merciful. But he couldn't, could he? When he decided that he was going to be love, not just be loving, but be love, free will had to be preserved no matter what they're going to do with that free will. Even if they're going to avenge seven for one, 70 for seven, and 24 million for a nephew. And 1,100 versus probably 20,000 by today. If God changed the plan, then the accuser would have been right. 
If God changed the plan, Satan now wins the great controversy. He could have denied them of his presence. He didn't have to come back. He told them everything that would happen. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He didn't have to come back. He told them what not to do, and he told them the consequences. If he was a just God and that was all he was, he'd have stayed on the throne and just let them cannibalize themselves into extinction. But what did he do? He came back to still be present. I promised you that you were created with love and the ability to love. You were created with free will. And I promised you that I would be present, even though, even if. And whether or not we believe it, whether or not we uh, live like it, he still walks and he still talks among us. You know how I know? Because you and I got together and he said, with one or, if two or more get together, there I am with you. He is with us right now. Every time two of us get together and all we do is just get together just to maybe talk a little bit about Jesus, talk a little bit about mission, there he is. He could have taken that 770, 1100, 20,000, 24 million. He could have taken all of that off the table. And there's a lot of people that would believe that that would be merciful. But it'd be a mask, wouldn't it? It would be fake. He would be controlling us the same way that the earthly gods control us. The gods on Olympus, they moved humans around like chess pieces. Decides to be present, decides to be with them, and we're reminded of that. See, it's not in this passage here, it's not that God changed his mind. He always knew what was going to happen, but he placed himself again in the timeline. And he's almost saying, you know what? I knew that this was gonna happen, but now that it has happened, and now that I've been walking in your presence, it's so much worse than I thought it could be. Why? Because he's decided he's going to experience it with us. He exists in the moment as if he didn't know, even though he knows. But when it happened, when he saw it, when he experienced it, he said, I'm so, I, you know, I, the regret comes. I, I'm sorry that I made humankind. I, could, I don't believe how bad this is. I don't believe how much pain you're going through. He exists to experience it as we do. It's the whole reason he becomes human, to prove to us that he's willing to exist and experience it. The word became flesh and walked among us. You know, after the flood, he says this, I said, I've set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. And usually in Sabbath school, we stop reading right there and we say how cool it was that the rainbow becomes the sign of the covenant. See, because we, we imagine what, what, what happens next, okay? What happens to the next rainstorm? 
Those people that know of the flood that, that, that exist from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, those people that have been told about the flood who look around and see you know, uh, evidence for the flood the, and, the, and the horror that it actually was, what happens the next time it rains? See, but normally what happens in a rainstorm, we see what? We see a rainbow. God says, when you see that, that's a sign of the covenant. And we, and we think that it was put there for us because we didn't keep reading. See, he said, yeah, it's a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, but when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember that the covenant is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become flood to destroy the earth. The sign's not there for us, it's there for who? Him. He promises that when he sees it, he'll remember. Does he need a reminder? No. But he wants us to know that he's willing to remind himself. He's willing to put something up there that will remind him. Why? Because he's decided he's going to live in our history to put his part into the story to live in the moment. He doesn't stop in the middle and say, hold on, stop right here, don't do this, I know how this ends. What does he do? He keeps going. Be present with us, even when we're wrong. Maybe especially when we're wrong. You know, and in some cases, he doesn't, he doesn't even just, just uh, you know, walk with us. He's willing to walk ahead of us and smooth the way. And then turn back around and says, I've walked the road already. I know where I'm going. You come with me. In this world, there will be trial and tribulation, but I've walked ahead of you. I have overcome that. So even in the midst of our fearful existence, the fearful planet, his presence is, even though and even if. He puts himself in the midst of this violence. It's hard to believe. It's hard to look at, at this world and, and believe that God is present. Which is why we're called to dream. As the prophets did. The prophets were called to dream. I know I've uh, shared this uh, scripture before. Sorry. Isaiah 9, it says, there'll be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into the contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It's been dark, he says. You've been through a couple of captivities, both of you. We've gone through idolatry. We've gone through nothing but wars. We've gone through wicked kings, a couple of decent kings, but for the most part, war, vengeance. Violence, babies being sacrificed. It's been dark, but guess what? A light's gonna shine, a glorious way of the way of the sea. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great what? A great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, the light has shined. By the way, the light was there before. You know, speaking of, of, of his presence, that, that Israel decided, that was, the one thing about, about the Old Testament is that he, 
he keeps trying to get close and they keep backing off. You know, so the temple is just one way of them being able to back off. Who are the only ones that are allowed to worship in the temple? The priests. Why? Because the people didn't want it. They told Moses, you go talk to him. So Moses' family gets to operate in the temple. They're the only ones. The only ones that get to experience the face-to-face experience that God wanted, the walking and the talking, is the high priest. He only gets to do it once a year, and he only gets to stand there long enough to be able to pronounce his name, and then he's got to get the heck out. Israel decided that the way that they could handle him is that they would take him and put his presence in the smallest place, hovering over this ice chest in the back of the smallest compartment of the temple. But God said, all right, if that's where you want me, fine. But you know what? My light's gonna shine from here. Just on the other side of the veil, that that eight-branch candlestick, that thing's gonna glow. The light's been there, right? He told those priests, you come to the ark, you come to the the, uh, mercy seat, that's where I'll be sitting. Meet me there. Yeah, okay. Is this what you're gonna do? You're gonna shove me in the smallest place? I'll take it. I'll take it. Because he's in it to condescend. He's in it to be with us. He's in it to live with us, even though, even if. You've seen a great light. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as an if the day of Midian. For all the boots trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned with fire. Seven, 70, 24 million, 1,100, 20,000. All the rules we play by, all the wars that we fought, all the violence of our everyday life burned in the fire. His people were burdened. They will have a way of light made for them. And it's coming by way of the sea through Galilee. Their yoke will be broken. Their oppressor will be broken. How? By these tramping warriors? No. Tramping warriors are thrown into the fire. Your ways are there. Boots and garments rolled in blood. See, this makes sense for us. This is how we would uh, uh, release the bar. This is how we would break the yoke as in the day of Midian. We would fight fear, vengeance, how it's done. Yes, get it done now. Do that for us, Lord. Raise up an army. Uh, Do something to make them afraid. And God says, guess what? No, for a child has been born unto you. Forgot, that's verse six. You're gonna have to believe me. For a child has been born, a son has been given, authority rests on his shoulders. He is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Sorry, Maccabees, you did a good job playing by the earth's rules. You toppled, you were, you were the, the last domino in the, in, the, in the Greek Empire. Oh, by the way, Rome's coming. You haven't seen nothing yet. But anyway, good job, Maccabee boys. Way to, way to go, 
Way to raise up tramping warriors. Here's my plan, God says, though. A baby in a manger. Not war, not vengeance, not sevenfold, not seventyfold. A baby. Show us the way. He has the light. He is the light. Show us that at least God, even in his complete presence, even though, even so, this presence is not to be feared in a fearful world. I wonder if the shepherds had heard the angels quote Isaiah before the baby comes. Would they have still gone? If they would have talked about warriors, if they would have talked about breaking the rods of the oppressors, if they would have quoted Isaiah back to those shepherds, would they have gone? No, I don't believe they would. The shepherds would have said, you know what? You're leading me to another battlefield? I've had enough. I don't want to see another battlefield. I don't want to see anybody's blood uh, shed anymore. So the angels don't bother with Isaiah uh, verses four through five. They just give them Isaiah 9, 6. They just give them the baby. And the shepherd says, that's maybe maybe these rules. I got to see it. I gotta see it. I know I shared this quote a couple of times. I think I've shared it both times. Ellen White in The Desire of Ages says, Satan purposed to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But in Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. Why? Because he placed himself, he came down to us. That's why we're so close. Has he done it for anybody else? Only the ones that have fallen. See, other gods would have said, all right, I understand what you're going through. Fight your wars, do your stuff, get your act together and I'll bring you up to the throne. But you gotta get your act together. You can't come and trample my throne with your dirty feet and your dirty minds and your dirty attitudes. I'll make you get close to me. No. The reason we're so close to him is that he is the one that left the throne and condescended and became one of us. His presence is, even though we don't deserve it, even if we've destroyed his creation and the love which it lived. So we're left with this message over Christmas. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Wow. Remember how close we're supposed to be? He'll give us his mind. You know, and maybe with that mind comes new eyes, a new way to look at the world, a new way to look at the world and to understand, a new way at least maybe just to begin to feel something again, to shed a tear for any blood that's shed, no matter what skin that it comes through on. Christ, even though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, as something to be used. Job was asking for somebody that would bridge this gap. He knew there was a God on the throne. I just need to know how to get there. 
And it wasn't God that said, well, I'll just you know, quit sinning, get your act together and you can come on up. No, I'm gonna come get you. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and earth and on the earth and under the earth. We become so close to him that he'll actually give us his mind, his heart, and then with our knees, then we worship him. He's present even though we don't see it, even though we don't feel it. And maybe the fact that we don't see it and don't feel it is to our advantage because it forces us then to dream just a little bit. I hesitate a little bit to leave you with this, but it's a story from the camps. See, uh, a couple of... Uh, theologians, a couple of Jewish theologians who actually lived through the camps. One survived Auschwitz. They said that every believer that was in the camp and, and, and experienced all of that before, before uh, their life had to end, whether they were liberated or whether they died in the camp, they all had to figure out where was God. See, because they all thought, thought that God was with them. And that this couldn't happen without God. Where was God? And that everybody that ever survived has had to figure that out. And whether or not that they are believers anymore. And there are quite a few that, that lived through it that said, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. But one day in one of the camps, they wanted to make an example behavior-wise of a 12-year-old boy who stole some bread and they made everybody gather around as they executed this boy by hanging him. And as he was hanging there, a voice came from within the people of the camp. Where is God? And somebody waited for just a second and said, he's there, hanging on the gallows. Many people who decided that they were still going to believe had to believe that no matter how horrific it was, the final solution, that God had to be there with them. See, because the Bible never promised that he would take away our pain. He only promised that he would be with us in our pain. So being found in human form he is, was, and is, and is to come. This was the final pretty much installation in the is. Even though, even if. And we're left with what Philippians tells us. Thanks for hanging on a few extra minutes. Happy Sabbath, everybody.